guys. Thanks so much for welcoming us. It's so good to be with you guys, to see your faces, to see your kids growing up. I love it. It's just such a blessing and an encouragement to me. I did have something the Lord put on my heart. I asked him to give me something for you guys, and I feel like he did. And it's a very short little phrase, but I'm going to expand on it a little bit. But the thing the Lord put on my heart for you is stay the course. Stay the course. You know, when a plane takes off from California flying to Hawaii, most of the time that it's going, it's correcting its course because the wind lands on the ocean, right? There's no, like, pathway, but it's always correcting its course all the way there. And finally, it lands on that tiny little island in the middle of the ocean. So I feel like a lot of times our lives are that way, and we're just correcting our, our course as we're going. But the, the encouragement and the exhortation is to stay the course. And I wanted to read a, a scripture here that goes along with that. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So the promise is that there will be a harvest. And depending on what we've sown, that's what our harvest will be. So we have to sow, as it says, sow to the Spirit. Please the Spirit. Course correct our, our hearts sometimes in our lives so that we're in line with the Spirit and what He desires in our lives. And the thing about that is sometimes it, we, in our flesh, we can just get tired. We can get weary. But the Bible just tells us here, don't become weary. Don't do it. Because you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Those are powerful words. And I want to encourage you guys with that. In the day-to-day, -day, you might lose sight. But remember, you're going to reap a harvest. You're going to receive a crown. You're going to receive a prize from the Lord, a reward from the Lord. So stay the course. Don't give up. Keep going. Amen? Amen. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for welcoming us. It is really, um, it's a happy time when we're with you guys. We're very comfortable with you, feeling like we're with family, and we just so deeply appreciate your hospitality Dows, especially, and all the folks that were serving us and accommodating us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a joy to be with you. Praise God. And it is a privilege to share the Word of God with you. So I hope to do that tonight. Good to see everybody that I didn't get a chance to say hello to yet. Um, I'm going to read first from Isaiah chapter 26, just a few verses from the beginning of that chapter to actually set us on our course that Gina just told us to get on and stay on. 
so this will be my prompt, and then I will focus on another passage of Scripture uh, that has been an important part of my journey recently. Been in a bit of a wilderness. That's why I'm not cutting my hair two and a half years. I trim it. Um, it's not a vow, but it is a mark of consecration uh, through a dry period in many ways. And um, this is being recorded, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it just, it's fine. I'll just make sure I'm aware of that. Also, my dad died in the middle of all this seven months ago, and he used to wear his hair this way when, I, when he was my age. So I am also doing this as an honor and a memory to him. As, as uh, the Jewish people pray, when someone dies, may his memory be a blessing. And so I'm blessed that my dad, uh, all indications point toward the fact that he called on the name of the Lord. Uh, near the end, and he passed away with some, I mean, there were other indications besides this, but he had books on his bed next to him when he died about um, Israel and, and a, a, a Christian view of Israel written by Dr. Brown and another one by Art Katz, my dad, a Jewish man who um, came to believe in Jesus. We believe, we, we really do with our hearts that we believe the Lord indicated that. Uh, anyway, so it's been quite a period of time for us, and, um, you know, preachers are always tempted to just talk about what's spinning around in their heads at the time, and so I'm cautious not to do that, like, just if it's important to me doesn't mean it's important for others, but sometimes it is, and I feel like it is one of those times, and so I'm going to speak from a passage that has been one of the most important perhaps the premier passage of scripture for my life during this two and a half year period, uh, because I think it's important for everybody. But that's not what I'm going to read first. Ha, ha, ha. Isaiah 26 is first. And um, I'm going to read this before we pray. You'll, I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. So Isaiah 26, verse 1, right? On that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever. For in Yah, Yahweh, we have an everlasting rock. So I've chosen this passage of scripture for two reasons to begin. One, because it will give us occasion to pray for Israel. That I'd like to, I'd like to start in my opening prayer, praying with you for Israel. And secondly, because it mentions in verse 3, uh, there's a reference to the steadfast of mind, which I believe Paul is alluding to in the passage that I will read in Romans 8. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. I believe Paul is echoing this passage. I believe it's in his mind when he's writing this. And that's our theme tonight. I don't know if you recorded the earlier part of the meeting as well, but when, when John was up here exhorting us to prepare our hearts to pray for the sick and other needs... He was conveying a mind set on the spirit. So I would, uh, you know, refer back to that if it's recorded. Listen to that. He was conveying a mind set on the spirit and encouraging us to do so. 
It's one of the purposes of church is to keep the people of God exhorted to have the mindset on the spirit. It's literally one of the purposes of church. It's one of the reasons why we gather. Scripture says that in Hebrews 3.13. I remember quoting Hebrews 3.13 from this this um, podium. I don't know if it was this exact table, but Frankie, I remembered what I said. Anyway, I, 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 um, I remember quoting that verse that um, to gather and, uh, day after day, as long as it's called today, right, so that none of you would be um, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another day after day. Exhort one another day after day, but there's also in Hebrews the message to keep gathering because the, the backsliding was accompanied by um, they stopped gathering and they stopped praying. And so they had not fallen all the way from the faith yet, but the author's tracking with them saying, look, you guys have to come back. You will be eventually deceived in, in your hearts if you're not together exhorting one another. We have to spend time with God. That's primary, secondary, and it's a close secondary is we have to spend time with one another to exhort one another so our mindsets stay, stay strong. We're not meant to be able to have a strong mindset in the spirit without connecting with one another and listening to the prophetic language of the community that was prophesied in Malachi. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard. And it was the mark of the remnant. Uh, those, and, and it was the mark of those who were against the current of of sin that Malachi was complaining about. Uh, and they would be the ones that would stand out in the end. So yeah, this is very, very important that our mindset is strong. Well, anyway, the, the, first, the first issue is that there's a song Isaiah says will be sung on that day. It's the day of the Lord, ultimately. When the Lord returns, he redeems his people. All Israel will be saved. And those of us who've followed Jesus uh, will be vindicated. Uh, that's all a part of this day. But the, the aspect that Isaiah focuses on here is simply that Jerusalem will be restored on that day. And Isaiah is prophesying this during a time when uh, Jerusalem is under the shadow of Assyria, who will come and, and bring God's judgment all the way up to the neck, it says. So Jerusalem will be saved in the end. Uh, Assyria won't destroy it. But Judah will, it was under great threat, right? And then were coming the Babylonians, and they would sack Judah and Jerusalem. And so there are people in the land who are living under the shadow of these threats. And Isaiah is saying, one day you'll sing a song that God has restored and established the city, and he'll protect it forever. So this gives us occasion to think about God's purposes that have as kind of a central headquarters Jerusalem and the land of Judea and ancient Samaria, but the whole land of Israel and all of that. So I want us to uh, take a few moments when we open up in prayer and just pray together for Israel. Uh, with everything happening, of course, we should be in prayer for Israel. It should be one of our prayers. Scripture teaches that about the peace of Jerusalem and, of course, Romans 10, the salvation of the Jewish people. Um, but especially during times like this, we want to pray. And sometimes it's, it's difficult to figure out how we should pray. Uh, this is a, a slippery topic sometimes. Like, how do we pray when Israel's at war? I mean, there's more at stake than just the land of Israel. People need to be saved, right? I mean, that's God's larger purpose. And, and yet there's so much suffering and there's so much injustice. Well, to keep God's main purposes in view, as simple as they are, are always the way to pray.
Paul's prayer in Romans 10.1 that they would be saved. We can always pray that safely. And then, of course, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 that God's overall purpose would be accomplished. That's always a very safe haven of prayer that we can pray with passion. And then, of course, we want to be you know, people of the Spirit. We want to have compassion and care about the people that are hurting, the families that are now broken, the terror that people live under, the, the deception that is involved in all of this, and the innocent people that are dying in Israel and uh, in, in Gaza and in other lands around them. Just the whole area of this world needs revival as well as God's purposes. So we want to pray for people to be aided, to, for people to be rescued. All of that counts. But God's larger purposes are always the things most important to his heart. You know, he's sovereign over the nations. So, you know, when, when you're biblically informed and prophetically sensitive, you could pray about a lot of the details. I encourage that. But in the broad strokes, we're always safe to pray for the big issues of revival and kingdom purposes and God's eternal purpose from Matthew 6. So let's pray about that and then we'll, we'll keep going. We'll pray about that. I'll pray about the rest of the meeting as well, too. Abba, Father, we are so grateful to be together under your favor by the blood of Jesus, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are marked by this precious blood and, and by the presence and power and manifestation of the Spirit. We are your covenant people. We're your children. We're your kids. And you are our Father in Jesus' name, adopted through him to you, O Father, and we are grateful and we don't take it for granted. Thank you for eternal salvation. Thank you that we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that we have one another and that we could join together as a family with you and with one another for your purposes in our region and in our city. And we pray indeed that that would happen. But we also call to mind the situation in the Middle East with your chosen ones, Israel, though they're not all in your new covenant there's still a people marked for your purposes that you've given an everlasting covenant to. And there's a promise that they will be saved uh, in the end. And so we're grateful for this, but we pray indeed for their salvation. We pray for the salvation of Israel. We pray for revival. We pray for a messianic movement in the land of Israel. We pray for messianic believers in the land of Israel who call upon your name, who make disciples and plant churches. We have friends there, Lord. We pray for them, that they would be strong, that their minds and bodies would be strong, that they'd be strong in faith, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be loud and clear like a trumpet in their mouths, and that there would be harvest and disciples among Israelis. But we also pray for those who live in Gaza and on the West Bank and in the other nations to the north and to the south and to the east, that there would be revival among these precious Arab peoples. The last frontier before Israel is saved. We're asking for a gospel movement where there's danger. We pray for the church in Iraq and Iran. We pray for Lebanon, Syria. We pray for Gaza and the West Bank and the other nations, Lord, in the surrounding region. Let the fires of revival be blown by the wind of the Spirit. May the gospel of Yeshua be unveiled. May there be great favor among the believers there. And may there be revival indeed in Jesus' name. We're asking for your name to be sanctified, Father, for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done upon the earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Father, we pray that Jesus would be exalted in power and glory, that we would see him in a new light and color by the Spirit and the Word today, so that our adoration might be deeper and sweeter than ever before, so that our hearts might be awakened with a fresh level of awakening, that our covenant bond with him might be strong, stronger than death, that it might be everlasting and almighty by the hand of God, our covenant with Yeshua. Lord, deepen your work in our hearts, we pray, inasmuch as we have the mind of the Spirit already, may we develop a mind set on the Spirit during this time. We pray for your blessing. We pray for the release of the activity of your Holy Spirit in our hearts right now. May we understand the word. May we learn and grow. May we be practically equipped during this time by your presence, Lord. This is a meeting guarded by angels for your sake. We're thankful for that. May we make the most of it. Uh, may we redeem the time. The days are evil. But Lord, your presence is in us, toward us, on us, through us. And for this, we're grateful. So may the Spirit be manifest. Praise God, because Jesus is King. He's Lord. He died, but he rose from the dead. And he ascended on high, ruling and reigning until he returns. He deserves such a people. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I already said that in verse 3, the reference to the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Paul, I believe it seems he's alluding, he's echoing uh, this passage in the, in the passage we're about to read. But what Isaiah is saying here is that, look, he's speaking to a people, as I said, under the threat of Assyria and then Babylon. That there's threats and then there's destruction. But Isaiah gives them a promise. One day a song will be sung about the redemption of, strengthening and eternal establishment of Jerusalem. So it may not be happening now, but there's a promise that will sing that song then. Keep your mind stayed on that truth. In the meantime, when the promises of God appear to contradict the circumstances in which we live, whether it's historical, you know, geopolitical issues in Israel or just our everyday pastoral issues in our own lives, when God's promises contradict um, the circumstances we're in, which is only a temporary um, you know, it's only a temporary situation that that, that that happens. But when it seems during moments that that's the case, let's keep our minds stayed on God and his promises. And even though our circumstances may be chaotic, our mindset will be at peace. And then God will bring the redemption that we need. So we have that there as well. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 8. This is the passage of scripture I was going to teach on a bit. <clears throat> a book came out just recently by a well-known New Testament scholar on this passage of Scripture. He says it's like the highlight chapter of Romans, which is already a highlight book. It's a big deal. It's, it's so, this chapter is so rich, so thick. It, I believe it's still leading toward chapters 9 through 11. Paul reaches the climax when he speaks of the new man and the 
saved Jews and Gentiles in one church. But still, this passage is so dynamic and powerful and important for us. So I want to shine a little light on it uh, for a little while, even though it's so dense with truth and meaning that I don't fully grasp what it's getting at. Um, but I have a few tidbits, I think, that I get. And um, during my own wilderness journey, I would listen to this passage or read it out loud or listen to it on the Bible app over and over again, trying to get it inside of me. And it was just a very, very important passage of Scripture for me, you know. All the pastoral passages, like Psalm 23, really important, promises of healing in Proverbs 4 and lots of lots of passages, became real sanctuaries for me in my mind, in my heart, during all the ups and downs. But somehow, this one, though it's not speaking pastorally in the same way those other passages did, there's something about this passage that just ministered to my center, to my core, and also challenged me. It's a very challenging passage of Scripture to develop the mind of the spirit, which you and I already possess as believers, and yet it has to be developed. And that's where the power is. That's where the fluidity of the river is. It's not just when God visits in revival and makes up for our deficiencies. The river of God is meant to flow through God's people who have the mind of the spirit. I remember hearing about, uh, reading something John G. Lake himself wrote or said describing the healing rooms that he established in Spokane, Washington, uh, Washington <clears throat> that people would come to these rooms for healing, and he trained people to pray for the sick, and they had a very high rate of success in healing. The, um, the people who, who prayed for the sick, what were they called again? D divine healing technicians. Divine healing technicians. That sounds pretty technical, hence the, the term technician. But um, he said about these people, they, you know, they were highly trained. They were absorbed in the word and in the spirits. Like that's how they prepared themselves. They were people of, they were people of God. And, you know, they didn't just learn how to pray for the sick. They were saturated in God's presence. You know, they spent sacrificial time in his word and in his presence. But Lake said that their minds were so set on the spirit that when people walked in the room for healing, they could feel the presence of God because the people that were there to pray were so focused on the Lord. His presence was there. It was like it was released through their demeanor, through their, through their spirit. That the, the presence of God was physically felt because they were so focused on the Lord. It's a bit of a mystical example, you know, it's experiential. There's a lot more to being set with our minds on the spirit than just so people can feel God's presence around us. The point is that God responds to that and he acts through that. That this is what he's really after. This is another way of, of, of explaining what discipleship is. It's training our minds to be focused on God and to be developed by his word because that gives the spirit full freedom to us, in us, and through us, which is really what God is after. That's where real revival is. Not when God's people are so deficient they have to pray for God to drop bombs wherever, but rather that they themselves are full of the Spirit. They're the dwelling place and expression of God himself. So this is important. 
Yeah, furthermore, I just feel that I really believe it's a time that we have to grow in wisdom and develop our minds. You know, we live in a very, very convenient society. We're not under the pressure of tribulation with a small t or constant problems of, you know, under the threat of attack or something. We don't live in an environment like that, and we don't necessarily want to. I'm not saying there's necessarily a virtue to that. I mean, 1 Timothy 2, we pray for peace so the gospel can go forth. But still, some people are more forced into a position where they have to have their mind set on the Spirit. We're forced into a position by our larger culture where we can be more, we can coast. We can just attend meetings and just coast and dope ourselves on various mechanisms or forms of narcotics, whether literal or, or figurative, in order to kind of self-soothe and deal with the pain another way, deal with the issues another way. You know, we can, we can prosper without sometimes, you know, even kn knowing the Lord. It's just, it, it, you know, it, we just, even religiously, we choose churches based on convenience and what's the most fun or exciting rather than having covenant relationships, which demands everything. Our mindset is different than a mindset of surrender to Jesus, speaking of the larger culture. And I just don't think it's wise to maintain a, a mindset of convenience. And what have you done for me lately to the Lord or to church leaders? That's not a spiritual mindset. So, you know, we can get away with that for a certain amount of time. But there's coming a time when we can't afford to be weak-minded. And I would say, spiritually speaking, mentally unhealthy. We must develop biblical, holy, spiritual, mental health. I mean Jesus-centered, not world-centered, psychiatric, psychological mental health, though sometimes people within the profession, they understand the gospel and they can help people toward this. But ultimately, we need discipleship. We need steadfast minds kept in perfect peace so we're not given to fear. We're not given to anger. We're not given to lust. And we don't have these, these ways out in our minds that are ungodly and unchristlike. It seems that those things plague the church and our culture as much as they plague the world. And brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. So we, want, we need to develop the mind of the spirit, which we already possess. That's my urgency. Going through my own wilderness, some of this was exposed in me. Some of my own reactions to what I was going through. And I realized, man, I, you know, I don't need to be physically healed as much as I need my mind restored in some areas that were exposed during this time of pressure. 100% believe that it's God's will for me to be healed physically, and thank God I'm, I'm recovering. Um, but more important than that was just my mentality and the core of my being. And I, I don't think that's just for me. I think all of us should be working on this. And giving ourselves to the Lord for it and helping one another as well. Again, we can't do it without one another. So Romans 8 here, there's a lot going on. I'll pick and choose, but I'm going to read for a bit. Well, we'll see. I often interrupt myself. <clears throat> we'll see what happens. I don't want to make a promise I can't keep. I'm already planning an interruption, so I'm going to try to avoid that. I'm already thinking, oh, I'm going to stop right there. Okay. We, we won't do that. We'll, we'll, we'll push through. 
Therefore, there's now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Mild interruption here. Let's read that again and really let it soak in. This is remarkable. He sent his own son. This is in the middle of verse 3. Okay, let's. Verse 3, what the law cannot do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sorry, I'm going to... How do you condemn sin? How in the world do you pull that off? How can you condemn sin? This is absolute magnifico. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like, oh, sorry, that's, that's pretty gringo, I know, but. <laughs> I hear that. It's like you have a law court, you have a judge, jury, you have the prosecution, you have the defense, and you have a criminal, or let's say it's a whole day of, uh, it's a whole day of, uh, of court, room, what, what's, what am I, look, trials, it's a whole, and, and one criminal after the other gets condemned, 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 but can that law court condemn crime? Like, you can, you can condemn a criminal, but can, can a law court condemn crime? Okay, that's it, we're tired of condemning all these criminals. We hate crime, right, everybody? Let's condemn crime. Crime, come on in here. Crime, you can't, Crime is abstract. Crime is inside people. It's not a person. How do you condemn a non-person? How do you condemn a non-person? Crime. I condemn crime. It's like, well, that doesn't work, brother. That's a pretty powerful prayer. And yet, you know, God, a, a, a powerful fantasy prayer, yet God condemned sin. He condemned sin. You know what it means? To condemn, it means that, well, it's usually a person, is guilty, found guilty in a court of law, and sentenced to death. That's condemnation. It's not feeling bad about sinning. Don't live under condemnation. I mean, that people do sometimes get in that mindset, and they shouldn't feel condemned under the accusation. But condemnation is even much bigger than that. Condemnation in this sense, means God himself finds the person guilty and sentences that person to eternal death. That's condemnation. So the fact that we're not under that anymore is awesome. <laughs> because prior to being in Christ, we were guilty of sin and sentenced to death. That was real. That was me and you before Christ, living under a divine death sentence. And if it lasts to the end without forgiveness in Christ, 
We experience the eternal death sentence. That's condemnation. I'm thankful we're not under that anymore. But how does that condemnation then apply to sin abstractly? How, do we, how does sin, like Paul calls it in the previous chapter, right? Paul says, sin affecting my death through that which is good, the command. Right? Paul says, I, I didn't know what sin was until the command said, thou shalt not covet. And then I found myself coveting in every way. And so sin took advantage of me through the commandment. It took something good and it made something bad inside of me because I'm so weak and selfish. And he says, you know what sin proved itself to be by taking a good commandment and, and making me a sinner through a commandment that's good? It says that, sin, Paul says, sin proved itself to be utterly sinful. Somehow sin is virtually personified by Paul, and he says sin is guilty of sin. Sin is really bad. But how do you catch sin and pull it into a court of law? Paul says somehow God did it. He, he called sin guilty, and he condemned it to death. It, will, it, it has been and will ultimately be destroyed in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now, how does that happen? How does Jesus in flesh sin? I don't exactly know. It probably relates to the fact that he is the last Adam. He's a man. And he's innocent of sinning himself. So somehow he can embody sin and be judged. But this is a great mystery. But it says what, what the law could not do. The law could not tell us to do right and get rid of sin. God had to do it organically and dynamically in his son. Right? What, is it, what does it say in Galatians 3.13? We're delivered from the curse because he became a curse for us. The innocent one became a curse. So the, the curse came together, somehow congealed in this man, and God eliminated the curse for us. But he had to bear it himself. First Peter, that was Galatians 3.13. 1 Peter 2, he bore our sins in his body which is parallel to this verse. He condemns sin in the flesh. And then, of course, there's an even more blunt way of putting it that's just mind-boggling. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 or 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. So somehow Jesus became sin. And that's parallel to this verse here in verse 3. Somehow embodying sin and God condemned sin in his flesh and eliminated it, guilty sentence to death, and eliminates it from the human race who believes. That is pretty remarkable. God did this for us. Amen. That's a good place to say amen. <clears throat> this is the mystery of the atonement. I don't get it all, but Paul's hinting at it to some degree. Right? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like every other man or woman in the sense of being a human. He looked like another, you know, the boy from Nazareth. He looks like physically he would be another sinner, but he never sinned. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Somehow that qualified him to take all the sins so that it's sin itself he's bearing, and God condemned sin in his flesh. Condemned it. You're guilty. You're sentenced to death. You're eliminated forever. That's 
That's remarkable. So God did that. It, we needed God's almighty power to destroy sin in the human race. When I say the human race, I mean those who believe. It's available to all who believe, but it's only applied to those who believe. But it's still a, a huge stroke of power and love and sacrifice to do this. This is the anchor of the mindset on the spirit where we realize this great gift of salvation and the importance of the cross and the value of the cross. There's no other religion that hints at anything so remarkable that it can extract sin from the human heart when it has been in, in, just ingrained into our being and into ourselves. It's impossible to separate us from it, but God did it. And the law only exacerbated everything, but God did it. We are liberated from the law of sin and death. You know, the law he's speaking about is playing on words with the law of God. But really, he's saying, based on chapter 7 and here, the law of sin and death means that I have something in me, if I'm not redeemed, that I must sin and I must die. It's the law. Until I'm liberated from that law, I will obey the law to sin. And I will obey the law to die. It is the law. And it's inside of me. Paul says in Christ Jesus, echoing from chapter 6, basically his posture is, do you all realize this? Do you realize this? Because he's speaking to people that don't get it. He says that in Romans 6. Don't you know that those of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He's speaking to a Roman church that's behaving toward one another showing their ignorance of the gospel that actually saved them because of their divisions and their arguments. Paul's saying, hey, you don't realize what God did for you. You really don't. You don't understand the level of transformation in you. You have it, but you don't know it. Which is my burden tonight, knowing the truth in an internal sense. You have it, but you don't know it. So let me write a letter that will be read out loud as a sermon for you to go over and over and over and over again. Right? So number one, you don't know what the gospel has done for you. That's the first thing. And number two, you don't realize, therefore, who and what you are. You have been transformed, whether you feel it or not. If you're an authentic believer in Jesus, if you've, if you've pledged allegiance to him, if you swore to God through a baptism of repentance, you had something happen inside of you that's a new creation. So he's informing people of this who actually don't know it. This is my burden, growing in wisdom and in knowledge so that we become powerful people. Even when we're at our weakest, we're powerful because we realize these things and we cultivate a mindset in accordance with them. So the law of sin and death had us bound, but we're liberated by a new law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We're liberated by that law. By believing we're forgiven, sin in us was condemned. We're granted the Holy Spirit, and now there's a new law. There's a new covenant code inside of us, and it's the very spirit of life. That's our code now. We're alive. We're not dead. We're free. We're not bound. Come on. Notice something else here. He says in verse 1, there's no condemnation at all. He's very emphatic in the original language. It's, there's just no condemnation. It's underlined in Greek. Not literally underlined, but the way it's phrased. 
So there's absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's why. He doesn't first say because Jesus died. Now that's true, but he doesn't say that here. Here he says, you've been liberated. So your lack of condemnation is not just, the fact that you're not condemned anymore is not just because something happened for you and me in history. It's because something happened inside of you and me. We have a whole new law, that old law of sin and of death. That's been condemned, that's erased, that's gone. We now have a new law, the law of the Spirit. The covenant code of the Spirit is now in us. We are liberated, and that's why we're not condemned. Something transformative happened. That's why we're not under the sentence of condemnation. It's not just theoretical, it's practical. How do you make that practical? He goes on to say, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The renewed mind is the key. That is both a truism and an allusion to a funny YouTube video. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but it's... Yeah, it's both very, very hilarious and very sad at the same time. <laughs> but So we won't go there. Maybe you all could look it up later. Don't look it up on your phones now, please. But later, I'm sure Frankie will help you find it. You got to find the right one. So what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and, and an, as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this is a walk that is walked out from the mind. That's what Paul's getting at here. It's not just our status. It's a way of life. Verse 5, for those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in accord with the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. That by itself is just good to read and say over again in our, in our hearts and minds. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness." But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'm telling you, this is so thick. Where there's, we're just going to touch on a couple things. Two things to point out about that passage. Number one, Paul fluidly shifts into a mode where he says, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. So there's always those moments where he says, look, you don't just have to try to do this. Let me tell you first, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are this. You're in the spirit if the spirit's in you. And that's part of the mindset. And I'm, and I'm tipping my hand for the, my practical list later. Uh, but that's part of the mindset is to accept the reality as it is of what's granted by, by grace through faith. He slips into that mode very fluidly and easily. And then secondly, he speaks of the future very fluidly. For him, it's all tied together. One day you'll be raised from the dead by that same spirit, which illustrates the life 
in the spirit because the spirit of God inside of you is so powerful. He will transform your body into an eternal body that is indestructible forever. That's a powerful spirit. And the second thing he's saying is, remember, you belong to a different age. You don't belong to this age. So get your mind out of this age. That's, that's why he says what he says. That's why later in a few verses, I don't know if I'll even get to it. He says, for I consider, and he's a hint, the things he thinks about. I consider, I reckon, they would say in the South, and that's often translated that way. I consider it's something in my mind. It twirls around. I focus on it. I recite it out loud. The word to, to reckon there in the Greek is related to the word to speak. That the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us or in us. I reckon this. I think about it. I've calculated it. That's literally what it means. I've calculated it and I've come to the conclusion. You can't make me suffer enough to forsake the promise I have in the future. The worst suffering is way more than worth the glory I'm going to inherit. So just, Lord, let me max out while I'm here. And if I, if I die doing it, I die doing it. It's so worth it. There's, I mean, th that's how real resurrection glory was to Paul. And that's where I'm like, Lord, you got to peel something back from my heart because I don't smell it and taste it the way he did. And you know one of the reasons why he did? There's two obvious reasons. Number one, he really developed a relationship with the Lord and meditated on the gospel. And number two, he suffered. And he insisted on taking his suffering and letting it make a mindset that looked to the future with greater value than the present. <clears throat> verse 12, very important verse here. We'll do five more verses, okay? So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living in accord with the flesh, you're going to die. But here's the obligation. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There's that suffering again, that nagging pedal, pebble in the shoe of this passage. You all know that we can't be discipled in a classroom, per se. We have to be discipled by, in a community of faith, walking through life with all the trials and tribulations, translating every bit of pressure and contradiction and pain into something of redemptive power in our minds. For I consider, in verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Forgive me, I'll, I'll pick it up here in a moment. Again, we're talking about the day of the Lord. Just like that. It's all one in Paul. Which is one of the secrets of the mindset. To focus beyond the veil to the day of the Lord. 
I don't, I don't believe we can live now without anticipating then. Biblically, we can't. It's impossible. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know... Did you hear that? Knowledge, very, very important. <laughs> we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. You know, Paul speaks of our adoption earlier in this passage as a present reality. Right here, it's a future. It's both. We're not fully adopted until we're transformed into this physical likeness of God. So the, again, the future is always... He just, it's a dance between the present and future with Paul. Adoption. You know, the, the term saved occurs mostly in the New Testament speaking of the future. But it does refer to the present. I'm saved now. That's a biblical concept. I'm saved now. But usually saved or salvation, numer numerically, you know, the, statistically, mostly refers to the future when we're rescued at the end of the age by being raised from the dead. So there's always this interplay. It's very important that the future bears down on the mindset of the present. Again, verse 24, in hope we have been saved. There's your past tense and future at the same time. In hope we have been saved, but hope that's seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance we wait eagerly for it. There is, again, your mindset. Oh, my, yes, I can keep reading that passage, but I'll leave that to you all on your own. Let's, let's go through a, a few points here that I have written out for you from, to remind me of what I wanted to talk about here, okay? Uh, first of all, it is a season of wisdom and knowledge. Guys, sign up for words of wisdom and knowledge for the rest of your life. We have to grow in wisdom and knowledge. It is urgent that a, a, a church culture that is often pacified by the world around it, we, we must be active in developing our minds in biblical wisdom and biblical knowledge. I talked about this with the leaders yesterday. There was a point I didn't develop fully about why knowledge comes after wisdom. But in Scripture, particularly the New Testament, wisdom is always first. It's the order, wisdom and revelation, Paul speaks of in Ephesians 1. The gifts of the Spirit in, in 1 Corinthians 12. The word of wisdom is the first gift. The word of knowledge is the second gift. We think of a word of knowledge as prophetic revelation. Like when I tell you that you're wearing a white Warner University uh, sweatshirt. But I, I tell you that tomorrow of what you wore in church today because I had revelation. I pick out a detail about your life. That's a precious gift of the Spirit, but it's not a word of knowledge. A word of knowledge is a message that imparts the knowledge of God based on the wisdom of God. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just to show you this point. And for the folks I spoke to yesterday, 
this, it was a verse I meant to bring out and forgot. So we get it today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul is complaining about the world trying to know God by its own wisdom. So that's not my exact point, but the order in which Paul thinks is important here. For since in God's wisdom, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The simple order there is what I'm bringing out there. Paul thinks of the world trying to know God through wisdom. It's wisdom. For Paul, any manner of thinking always begins with wisdom and then leads to knowledge. That's why he says the world was trying to know God through its wisdom. Wisdom has to come first. Wisdom creates the mindset. Wisdom is the philosophy where we're framed in our minds. And the knowledge is built on that foundation. That's why the word of wisdom is the first gift. Because according to these chapters in 1 Corinthians, the word of wisdom, or let's just say the wisdom of God, is always the cross. But not just the cross as a proclamation. Seeing the value of the cross for salvation, that's wisdom. And seeing the way of the cross as a way of life, that's wisdom. And if we don't buy that deeply in our spirits, it doesn't matter what we learn after that. We're just, we just endanger people when we get more knowledge based on a lack of wisdom. Wisdom is always first. For the church, wisdom is saying, I believe God effectively saves through the cross, and I don't care how stupid it looks and how counterintuitive. That's wisdom. It's effective. I yield to you. I fear the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. That's wisdom. We need wisdom, but wisdom is a mindset. It's a Holy Spirit philosophy that says the cross is of the utmost value as an instrument for my salvation and as a way of life. And that's the way you plan a church. It's the cross made manifest. If everybody's just doing the cross walk, then we're a church. We love one another. You don't have to just attend and have a building to call it a church. You have people who just have bought into this philosophy. The selfless way, I don't live for myself, I live for God and his people, that's wisdom. Now, once we enter in through that wisdom, now we gain knowledge and we become more powerful. If we gain knowledge without that wisdom, we become more selfish. Because knowledge, Paul means in 1 Corinthians 8, by itself, knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. And love is the wisdom of the cross. And then knowledge grows in that. It's like, yeah, now I'm going to grow and grow and grow. And everything I find out of, from the scriptures that belongs to me, I'm going to activate that in my life. We grow in knowledge. <clears throat> so here we have the wisdom of God unveiled for us in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. And then over in chapter 8, he starts talking about the knowledge of God. And that's where, you're, that's where we should define word of wisdom and word of knowledge. Messages that are prompted by the Spirit that unveil the cross in some manner. Practical, exalting it as the way of salvation. Giving us wisdom. We should be active in the word of wisdom in the congregation. 
And then after that, the word of knowledge that gives the knowledge of God, that builds on that wisdom, revealing God as God and in practical ways on how to relate to one another, since the more we learn, the more responsible we are to relate to one another in love. You see how that goes? Are you with me on the order of wisdom and knowledge? Okay, that's a part of the mindset on the spirit. Let me give you one other passage of scripture, and I'll get to my list. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Listen to Paul's emphasis here on learning. It's, It's remarkable. He relates it to living. Sometimes we say, yeah, I know it in theory, but I got to get it in my heart so it becomes practical. Actually, if you, if, if you know something divine in theory, you can't help but make it practical. It's like me imparting knowledge to you tonight. Let's say I have a piece of information that is this. This building is on fire. Sorry, I don't mean to speak negatively, but that's my information. The building is on fire. If I teach you that and you learn it, You're not just going to sit there and say, oh, we get it. The building's burning, right? You're immediately going to run in, get your kids, and help people out who need help, and you're going to get out. The knowledge is action because of the nature of the knowledge. The knowledge I'm talking about is dynamic. It's on fire. It, 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 It bestows honor upon the people of God in terms of their identity. It tells them how powerful they are and calls them to the cross. And when we know things based on wisdom, see, remember, we've embraced the the philosophy that the cross is effective even as a way of life. Once you're there, everything you learn becomes embodied in behavior. It's not a matter of fighting to get it from your head to your heart. It's a matter of fighting for the value of the cross in your heart. Then all knowledge becomes practical. You don't have to try to get it to descend. It descends automatically as long as it's based on wisdom. We need a mindset of the spirit. We need more wisdom and more knowledge. Man, I feel like, anyway, I, th- I feel like I'm saying too much. You don't look that way, though. You look very interested, and I appreciate that. But I'm listening to myself talk, and I'm like, man, <laughs> this is a little much. You don't even get all this. What right do you have to tell others about it? <laughs> I mean, I, I get it to a degree, you understand, we're working on this. There's no way any one person accomplishes this in one day. I walk a dirt road almost every day for a period, just listening to this back and forth, shaking my head, praying, like, Lord, get this in me, get this in me. Anyway. All right, listen to this. I say this, I affirm with the Lord, okay, Ephesians 4, 17, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their minds. Same thing in the first couple of chapters of Romans. All them Gentiles, Paul says, they're all ignorant. That's why they worship idols. If they were wise or knowledgeable, they'd worship the true God. But they do things, their action shows they don't know anything. So ignorance is not bliss in these texts. Don't walk, see, that's practical, that's lifestyle, the way the Gentiles, meaning those outside the covenant, the way they walk, in the futility of their minds. Look at this in verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. 
I mean, if you take this out of context, you're thinking you just have to go to seminary and then, then you'll be alive. But Paul's not talking about just studying theology in a room. He's talking about really knowing God personally and knowing what's true about God all based on wisdom. That's what he's talking about. So as far as he's concerned, they're not alive because they're ignorant. There's the language right there. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves up to indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your uh, former manner of life, you are to rid yourselves of the old person, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on, and this is how you put on the new person. You're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new person, which in God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. If we embrace wisdom, now we're on a, 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 in an open field to learn knowledge and become more dynamic in the Holy Spirit. We must develop a mindset of the Spirit, which is built on wisdom and grows in knowledge. The renewed mind is the key. As we allow our minds to be renewed in knowledge based on wisdom, we become more powerful people. So let me give you my list here, some practical things about this. The mindset of the Spirit. A mindset, when Paul says the mindset on the flesh is death, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, he's not merely talking about our focus. Focus is important. We should be focused. But that's not fundamentally what Paul means by that word. What he's talking about is a frame of mind, a mindset. And Isaiah meant something similar. The Hebrew word means something similar. So we must develop a mindset of the Spirit. That's why I base it on wisdom. We have a philosophy that God's way is the right way. And his way is the way of the cross. It's the way of love. It's the way of not living selfishly, but selflessly. And that that's the most satisfying and most productive way of living. That's a mindset. It's a philosophy. It's a, it's a spirit. So we're not just renewed in our minds in Romans 12. Ephesians 4 says we're, we're renewed in the spirit of our minds. Which means it's our whole posture. It's not just our mind. It's the spirit of our mind. It's the posture, the attitude. A mindset, according to the, the dictionary I looked it up in English, is an established set of attitudes. It's a set of assumptions, a worldview, a set of values from which we operate, that we assume to be true, and they are, they are non-negotiable. Those who come to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him out. I won't, I, I'll die on that hill. I won't deny, I won't, you know, I'll, I'll read some apologetics to strengthen my faith, to answer good questions, but I'm not going to operate back and forth, God is, God isn't, God is, God isn't, God is, God isn't. That's, that's, that's a mindset that we want, that God is, and that is a rewarder of those who seek him out. And that the way of the cross is the way of value in life, because after it, God raises the dead. 
So we want to go down when he requires us to go down because then he'll raise us up. That's the philosophy I live by. A mindset is an established set of attitudes, assumptions, worldview, a set of values. It's a mindset. We can be in a frame of mind. You understand that no circumstances have to dictate your and my frame of mind. We can have a frame of mind that's dominated by thoughts of poverty, like I'm never going to get out from this. There's never enough. That's a mindset. We have the power to change that mindset. Mindset of sickness and weakness. Where if we're always thinking, well, here we go again, here we go again, this is something I've had to battle at times. It's like, and, and, and I have my main community, my wife, who's an exhorter, who always points me in the right direction, like that. It's a mindset that we need the Spirit and one another for. But th these are mindsets. They're not just things we focus on. Like, I may focus on something that makes me afraid, but I'm not necessarily walking around with a frame of mind that I'm always afraid. I don't, ha I don't think I have that problem. But there's times... Okay, so then I'll change my focus. But a mindset is the whole frame of mind. It's like where you're sitting in your brains. Okay, like my new diet. <laughs> and I'm not trying to get you guys to eat healthy. That's not my agenda here. But I had to make some serious changes to, to work certain things in my body because my long-term issue is inflammation. So I'm like off everything. I literally wake up and here's breakfast for me. I just breathe air. No, I'm just I say so I'm off all these things. I'm off all these things and I only eat these other things. Last night we had a leader's dinner and there was wings and pizza. And it really smelled good and I had no problem with it. I enjoyed the smell. I went over by the pizza and I and the wings especially. It's that tangy. Man, what is it about these smells and things that aren't good for you that comfort <laughs> that comfort your soul? It's a comfort, it's comfort food. I mean, I wanted my comfort food. It's not even just I, I wanted the taste. It was there was an emotional attachment with it. But my mindset is not I, I'm in my old frame of mind. I wish I could have that. I still miss it. And I still want it. But it's easy to deal with that because my mindset, okay, I'm not trying to eat certain things and deny certain things from over here in a mindset that's like, I just want to eat a big piece of cake. I just want to eat a slice of pizza. I, just, that's, I don't think that way. I had to switch my mindset. I had to think, I'm just putting things in my body that are nutrient dense. I'm just feeding my body things that my body cr craves on a health level and needs. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. So when I miss something, I'm not trying to resist it from a mindset that's wishing I could have it. I'm in a whole different mindset. It's like, this is what I'm doing, and this is why I'm doing it, and that's my frame of mind. So whatever I have to deny, I don't feel a big loss because I'm in a frame of mind. If I were in another frame of mind that's like, I just want this food. I want to eat what I want to eat. I mean, chocolate was like part of my identity. And I'm in that frame of mind and constantly denying, I'm thinking of what I can't have. I'm thinking of the loss. I'm weak and I'll falter eventually. So that's the frame of mind that changed with me. And that's another thing I enjoy about this. That my mindset changed. My whole relationship with food changed. That's not my point. You guys eat the way you, you, know, eat the way you want. I'm not preaching health here. However, when I think of it, 
I enjoy the fact that my mind shifted, that I have a different take on food. I feel different just because of my change of mind in itself. So the frame of mind is where we're set. It's like, it's like the position that we're trying to reach things from. The mindset on the spirit is powerful because it assumes kingdom truth and builds knowledge upon it. Rather than coming from a place of weakness and trying to obey God and trying not to do the wrong thing. It's like, think about this. Think about the reward of those who seek him out. Think about the power of the resurrection that's coming when you make it to the end. That's a mindset. All right, here we go. You ready? The mindset on the spirit. The spirit. Being renewed in the spirit of the mind. Uh, let me give you a, a, a quick list. Can I give you a quick list? Yeah. A little practice. Practical things. Will that help? Is that what you want? Okay. Number one, realize that if it's a gift. If we're born again, if we've pledged our lives to Jesus, we have, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. Whether or not we cultivate it is up to us, but God has granted us this. We're not reaching from a different, from a place of, of, of deficiency. We're reaching from a place of possession. We have the mind of Christ. You are in the spirit, Paul told the Romans. And that's something we have to settle. We must face grace when we build a mindset. We have to accept of what God has granted us. And believe me, it requires more humility than you may realize that God has granted all these things. Our, our self-sufficiency and our doing on our own is, is negated. God has granted us his spirit. We now have massive potential. Secondly, appreciate God's larger purpose and the beauties of the gospel. Okay, we're not just thinking about the gospel. I would, I would encourage you to change the posture of your mind. It, it's, it's a shift we can make to appreciate the beauty of the gospel. Okay, if you're reciting, okay, Jesus died for me, and you know, you're not really thinking about it. It's like it's just a theological fact. Put yourself in a position to appreciate the colors of the beauty of Jesus' self-sacrifice for you. The glory of the coming resurrection, the grandeur of this story. The gift of God. Let it not be religion to you. Appreciate the beauty of the gospel and what God has done. Just take some time and appreciate. Adore God in terms of the painting that he painted, the portrait of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a posture of appreciation. This is seeping through everything Paul says. It's his letters, they're so dense with meaning. We, we, we lose the emotive elements. We, we lose the, the, the ahas, the, the tears, the, the weeping, the laughter that's behind everything that's being said when he writes. Let's find that place of appreciation, of posture. I'm telling you, you'll start seeing God when you lower yourself to that position of appreciation. Thirdly, in terms of what Gina was saying, stick to God's, and, and, and John was saying this too, stubbornly stick to God's goodness and his sovereignty. Goodness and sovereignty. There are times we suffer, which is another point, actually. There's times we suffer, and it's hard to reconcile that with God's sovereignty, God's 
lordship over everything because we don't want him to be responsible for bad things that happen. Well, here, here's the deal. In my life, I don't think of God causing the bad things. The devil causes sickness and disease and, and you know, whatever it is that's sinful. The devil does it, but I have to deal with the fact that God allowed it. Doesn't mean he was actively doing anything. Doesn't mean it was his desire, but he's allowed for a lot of freedom in this world, and I have to deal with that. So God is sovereign, but he's also good. Something bad is happening to me. He's not allowing it because he's bad. He's allowing it because he's forming something good in me because he's good, and he's thinking of my future. So a mindset on the spirit has to buy into the sovereignty of God and not be afraid of that when bad things happen. And yet he's good. And we can't be afraid of defending that beautiful point either. Especially for our own lives. No matter what we're going through. God is sovereign. And God is good. That's the mindset of the spirit. Now, I'll tell you something. To, to think of it otherwise is not reality. It's not real. God is good. And he is sovereign. And if we're, you know, if we think we're faked out just because bad things happen and, oh, I guess God's not truly sovereign or good, then we're not in touch with reality. What we want is reality. The mindset on the spirit is a mind that's sober. It's, it's in touch with reality. That's mental health to me. God is good and he is sovereign. Are there emotional moments that we have to fight through the men, to that mentality? Absolutely. These things aren't automatic. We have to be real. We're emotional. Hard things happen. Demons are flying around. People say stupid things to us about us. Sometimes we remember them. This, the, being spiritual doesn't mean you just ride everything I'm saying like it's a wave, like there's never a challenge. There's always a challenge. But it's worth fighting through to a mentality that says God is good and God is sovereign. Right now, that just feels like theory to me, but I'm going to fight through in this moment until it's a conviction. I'm not leaving here until it's a conviction. And when I say not leaving here, maybe it's your prayer closet, maybe it's through the, throughout the week and you're receiving exhortations and prayers. And some people have spots of weakness where others don't and they need extra help. And all that's fine and good. We need one another. But we got to fight through to a mindset that God is good and God is sovereign. Who stole my Honda? The mindset on the spirit has an expectation. Oh, by the way, a good verse for that. God causes all things to work together for good. That's in our chapter. That is a mindset. And this is coming from a man who was suffering as he wrote and suffered often. He says, I die daily. That was a commentary on how often he was emotionally, verbally, and physically rejected and hurt for the gospel. And this was something that he could not escape. God takes everything and turns it toward the good, even if the devil did it. That's God's, this is an important point. There's God's sovereignty at work. That's why we're committed to God's sovereignty. He'll take the bad and turn it to something good. That's a powerful mindset. Because it doesn't have to de deny, this hurts and I'm emotionally down. I don't deny that. I submit to you. I submit to my brothers and sisters. I confess this gladly, but I really do have a conviction. God's going to turn this into something good. I won't even refuse to walk through it because of that truth. That's a mindset. You see what I'm talking about? Mindset. See what I'm talking about? Yeah, I meant what I said. I meant what I said. Along with that, there's, an, there's a, another aspect of the mindset is there is an expectation of God to be faithful. 
which creates patience, which is another thing Garrett talked about, didn't you, John? Patience. This is what Hebrews is written. You have need of endurance. So that after you've made it through, you'll get your reward. Don't fail. The, the Lord's soul has no delight in the one who shrinks back. Endure. It's a mindset. Even when you don't have a good reason why, sometimes Hebrews just says, you need endurance. You just need to hear that. It's like, I could do that. I could do that. He says, endure, I'll just endure. Nothing changes, I'll just endure. The mindset is powerful. That's why if we have a mindset, people walk in the room, they're like, whoa, God is with you guys. I feel conviction for my sin because we have a mindset. It's so powerful. It's like this, it's just, this is an atom bomb. Or if you're ladies, it's an Eve bomb. It's an Adam and Eve bomb. No, I meant Adam, A-T-O-M. It's a mindset. This humor, it comes out of a mindset of thinking you're funny when you're not. 1 Peter 1.13, here's another aspect of a mindset on the spirit. Peter says, um, prepare your minds for action. Prepare for action. This is an important one. Literally, it, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. Like, be mentally prepared always to run with God. He's probably echoing the Passover narrative, where they ate the Passover ready. So that if they had to go at any moment, just a couple of minutes, into, that's why the bread was unleavened, because you couldn't wait for it to rise. Had to be quick. Had to be ready. Right? So if, if, if God called on them to go, if the moment came, they're ready. They're not like, what's going on? What's going on? We, we didn't get to the bitter herbs yet. We have to eat the sweet apples. It's like at any moment's notice, boom, they're ready to go. All right, we need a mentality that, that when, when, when turbulence occurs, we say, okay, we signed up for this. We're not going to be all freaked out and get under it. It's like, no, no, this is, this is why God saved me. The Lord told me once, uh, the Spirit spoke to me. I, I was flying. It was many years ago. And the turbulence, you know, when you fly a lot, you, you get used to turbulence. This was a level of turbulence even after years of flying I was not used to. Things were really bouncing around, dropping suddenly. It was an international trip. So we're over the ocean. And I, I, I started to think about maybe getting afraid. I was just to the threshold. And by the way, a little pause here. If you look forward in the seats during turbulence, it's awesome. Because everybody's head <laughs> moves in perfect sync at every move. Because everybody's on the same plane. So it looks like they're dancing together, like they're on some kind of <laughs> dancing show. They're on, their heads are moving to the side like this. It's absolutely perfect synchronization. you got to watch that. It'll help take your mind off. But more important than that, the Spirit spoke to me and said, these are made for turbulence. And he was speaking about the airplane. That's the very design. It was engineered for turbulence. Okay, It's not going to hurt the plane. I understand things can happen. It's an imperfect world. But generally speaking, the airplane's created for turbulence. It can handle it. But the, the subtext, the double meaning for me was, you're made for turbulence. Don't freak out when it happens. You're made for this. Be prepared for action. I wrote a text to one of my friends in Israel. His daughter is 
got called into the army and you know they're they're living under a, a physical threat and they know they're 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 heading into a war like none since the 1940s or uh, they they're the ones using this this extreme language and I wrote to him and I said, I'm praying nonstop for you. Our churches are praying for you. We're with you. And he wrote me back and he thanked me. And he said, um, my friends and I feel, he says, first he said, this is so hard. This is so hard what's happening here. It's so hard. He said, but my friends and I are operating in a peace that's not from this world. He says, everything, he said, we feel like everything we've learned and everything we've prepared for, and every time we've been in the word, and every time we've prayed, it's all been for this. This is what we signed up for. Such a remark about being prepared in the mind for action. Okay, let's view the circumstances differently. It doesn't make them easier. He's repeated himself how hard it is. They're going through heck. You know, the, the, we're not even hearing most of what's happening in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks. We're not hearing most of it. And I have friends there that won't describe some of the things happening because they don't want to say it or write it. It's really bad. None of that gets taken away. But his mindset is strong because his mindset is prepared. This is what we signed up for. We can handle this. Even if it's from the devil, we're at war. We signed up for war. We will get through this and we'll have God's purposes. That's a mindset. Amen. And then the next point goes right with it. We learn during periods of suffering. Don't try to push your way out of it unless it's, you know, your own repentance that is needed. But through periods of suffering, you learn, you bring redemptive knowledge in and you become more like Jesus we don't, again, it's similar to being prepared for action, so I'll move on. Uh, the next point I was going to make, and, and this is something I've already talked about. We embrace the resurrection as a reality. It's not theory. We're living for another age. This is something, like I said already, Paul thought about, logizomai, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Lord, help us not be so at home here, but to anticipate the resurrection, to look forward to it, and that it would, be an, it would create urgency here rather than an escapist attitude. Okay, the next point, this is, I got two more, and this one's very, very important. I, I already touched on it. Learn... Let, let's put it this way. Let us learn our identity. Make it part of your study. This is all our identity in Christ submitted to God. Paul uses knowledge language throughout 1 Corinthians to speak about our identity. Don't you know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know you will judge the world? Don't you know? He says it 10 times, and it's all about identity. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You are an unleavened lump. That's who you are. He speaks to identity on, on the, along the lines of knowledge. So we grow in knowledge based on wisdom when we learn our identity. We meditate on it, and we get it in our system. We are God's children. 
We have various privileges. All things belong to you, whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, life, death, things present, things to come. All things belong to you. Well, if the Bible says that, there's a good reason to think about that. And then he says, and then you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. That's a mentality. And finally, something else I also mentioned already is that we have an obligation. We, ha we have a mindset that we are responsible to develop spirit life. And I read that passage. I read that verse. We are under obligation, Paul says, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's the obligation, to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So let it be a mentality. It is my responsibility to activate the Spirit in my life and put to death the deeds of the body. It's my responsibility. When I was baptized, I signed up for that as well. To walk in the Spirit is my responsibility. That's a mindset. If you have that sense of responsibility, then you're, you're more apt to do something about it. Amen. Let's stand together.